we come together in peace to celebrate the babies born in our district. We dedicate ourselves and our children to God. It takes a village and machine guns. Who among them can be persuaded? Who can be turned, ignited, to burn this shit place to the ground? Hello, this is Gina, and welcome to the latest edition of Resisting Gilead. Today, we are going to be talking about Season 3, Episode 4 of The Handmaid's Tale, which is titled, God Bless the Child. But before we get into this, we're going to talk a little bit about something that happened in the news this week, the resignation of Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Now, at one point, the comedian who performed at the White House Press Association dinner, I don't know, I guess it was a couple years ago now because they they skipped it this year. She made a reference to The Handmaid's Tale and particularly she she called out Sarah Huckabee Sanders saying something like, oh, and I loved you as Aunt Lydia in The Handmaid's Tale. And so when Sarah Huckabee Sanders resigned this week, combined with this episode being so focused on Aunt Lydia's character in a way, I just thought I had to bring up both together also because I recently saw a, a somewhat older interview with Ann Dowd. It was, it was probably from last year sometime. And she was talking about how she had been on a really long flight to Australia. She got off the plane, was super jet lagged, got back to hotel room, turns on the news and, and she hears someone saying, oh, uh, to Sarah Huckabee Sanders, oh, I, I, I loved you as Aunt Lydia. And she's like, I'm so confused. What's happening? And she just, I think she kind of got a kick out of it. Um, so we're going to play a little bit of that right now. And of course we have Sarah Huckabee Sanders. We are graced with Sarah's presence tonight. I have to say I'm a little starstruck. I love you as Aunt Lydia and the Handmaid's Tale. Mike Pence, if you haven't seen it, you would love it. And I'm never really sure what to call Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You know, is it Sarah Sanders? Is it Sarah Huckabee Sanders? Is it Cousin Huckabee? Is it Auntie Huckabee Sanders? Like, what's Uncle Tom but for white women who disappoint other white women? So, okay. Yeah, I mean, a lot of moans and groans. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is not beloved by the majority of the American people. And let's all hope in whatever she does next, it is much less damaging to the country than, you know, really all the all the lies she's been helping spread. I mean, I know, I think I heard that like Trump is up to his 10,000th untruth since he took office. And I don't know if anyone's kept the tally on her, but I wouldn't say she's probably as close, but I, I, you know, wouldn't surprise me if she's up there in like the 5,000 mark somewhere. So anyway, we'll see. So farewell, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And 
hopefully whatever you do next, it will not be so closely aligned with uh, fostering a society like Gilead's. We can only hope, right? Anyway, so before we get into the meat of the episode, I wanted just to talk about some of the cinematography and the amazing shots from this episode, as well as some of the acting. So in my opinion, I'm going to say there are three super visually stunning shots from this episode that I just want to call out and bring everyone's attention to. So the first is, it's really the opening scene where all parties are making their way to the church for the, I guess you would call it appreciation ceremony for the children that were born in Gilead the past year. And for me personally, anytime I see the handmaids lined up together, whether they are walking in the street, whether they are kneeling down, getting ready for a salvaging, I think the last time we really saw them in this kind of a procession was the funeral last year after the terrorist bombing at the new Red Center when they were in their very specific morning wear. But um, I love seeing them walk in formation. I think it's just the vividness of their red uniforms against the just gray, dismal backdrop of Gilead is just super visually stunning. And then to see them coming together with the other groups and them all marching in formation, it was the handmaids, it was the wives and their commander husbands, and it was also the Marthas. So you've got this kind of stripiness of, you know, the super bright, vivid red, the more subdued kind of teal blue that the wives wear, just the black of the husbands, and then that kind of green gray color of the Marthas. Um just really interesting procession and to me visually interesting to look at. The second shot that I think is so stunning and we've really been seeing it all along this season. It it usually comes right at the beginning before they start the episode. They're looking down on handmaids moving up a staircase and for a long time I couldn't figure out if this was a, a, a shot that we'd seen before but I love it because it's not a square staircase. It's not a circular staircase. It's it's bowed in such a way that when you're looking up at it from above, it is the shape of an eye. And the handmaids moving beneath it, it just, you know, really is the visual representation of under his eye. These handmaids under his eye, the eye of God in the society. And it's another one that I've just been like, wow, look at that shot. Um, Just really, really beautiful. And then the third one has to be, and this is something we saw before, if anyone saw the trailer, was the scene between Serena Joy and June. Uh, And they're kind of sitting on these lounge chairs and in this like beautiful indoor pool area. It turns out this indoor pool is part of the Putnam's house, which is Naomi and Warren, um, you know, the family that, you know, Janine used to be handmade for. And this is just one of the most beautiful rooms I think I've seen in these households in Gilead's. I've always preferred the Putnam's house to the Waterford's house because it just seems brighter and whiter and cleaner. There's something just 
gray, there was something gray and dark and depressing about the Waterford house that, you know, has since burnt to the ground. But to see that they have this beautiful pool room as well, and and maybe they they use it. There were there were towels next to these lounge chairs, so you hope they would. But to me, this was just super Gatsby era indoor pool. It reminds me of one at the Palace Hotel, which is it's not on the ground floor, and this is the Palace Hotel in in San Francisco, which was built sometime in the early 1900s. But they have this beautiful indoor pool. It's, um, it's like on the fourth or fifth floor. It's, it's not ground floor and it's much, it seems to be much smaller than this one at the Putnam's, but just kind of a beautiful room. And, and I guess this really is part of the Putnam house that they shoot at and they've never used the room before. And they made the decision to use the indoor pool, which I mean, just awesome choice because it's just, you know, one of those, I don't know. It's hard to find beauty in this society. And I think the the beauty of this pool for uh, such an important conversation between June and Serena um, was just a, a really nice, really nice call. So heading into the acting, I think there are three women really to focus on this episode. The first is Emily. She is just so traumatized from Gilead and she's really struggling. I mean, she is back with a family that she loves and and a family that loves her. And it's just still so traumatizing. You know, she's she really doesn't know how to cope. And I think everyone realizes it's it's gonna be tough. But think about this reunion and think about all the families we have at the border that are currently separated and and sure. My greatest hope is that they get to be reunited at some point, but it almost makes you think the damage has are, are the damage has already been done, and you know, I don't know if if they end up in how are they going to get help they need to to remend their families after this, particularly the children. I mean, Emily is an adult woman, and yes, there were serious violence and and other you know, torturous acts against her that, that took place in Gilead. And we think about how traumatized she is. And then think about if this happened to a child, you know, maybe not the violence, although we're hearing, we're hearing some odd stories come out of there every once in a while, some some bad rumors. And I just, I don't know what it's going to mean for this generation of children that have been separated from their parents at the border. Um, But it's not going to be good. And it's probably going to have repercussions for us as a nation uh, that no one has really taken the time to think about at this point. So just, you know, on the doom and gloom side, something to think about in that respect. And then we have Aunt Lydia and Dowd. I mean, she is incredible. I've often said she's she's like an onion. I want to know the backstory to Aunt Lydia. I am dying to know the backstory about Aunt Lydia I hope we get it this season, particularly after her outburst. But I mean, she's just such a conflicted soul, but also super torturous. And I think, you know, um, broken, you know, Aunt Lydia is, is very, very broken. 
And then, you know, we have Elizabeth Moss as June and damn, that girl just acts her face off over and over and over again. And she's brilliant. She's brilliant this week in, she's, she's really the one that is almost like the ambassador between (laughs) Serena and Fred since they aren't really talking to each other and she's crafty, man. She is crafty. She is working this to her advantage in a very subtle way. I mean, it's not subtle to us, the viewer, but, and it's probably not so subtle to Serena. They know each other a little better, but I do think it's very subtle to Fred. I mean, Fred is so desperate to get back into Serena's good graces. And, you know, he makes a comment that, oh, Mrs. Waterford hasn't said, you know, two words to me. And she came to visit June quite specifically. So I think that just goes to show who Serena trusts more at this point, who she feels she can share more with at this point. And that's a huge win for June. So acting wise, that is kind of the the top three, our top three ladies of the week. And let's get into the show a little bit. As we start off, they're all going to have this honoring ceremony for the children born in Gilead. And I am personally pleased to see that for the first time, it actually looks like they are in something resembling a church. You know, the seating is a little bit foreign to me because it still looks like a venue more for entertainment. But, you know, we've got the pipe organ, we've got the grand windows. There is someone actually leading this ceremony that seems like he's a religious figure. So in some ways that (laughs) in some weird way, that makes me feel better about Gilead, that there is actually kind of some form, some place of worship where a more joyous ceremony happens because we definitely cannot call, well, you can't really call a, um, a surprise child bride wedding ceremony a happy moment. I think it's, you know, no one knew it was happening and it's just a little weird. And, you know, Nick, he's got to be, you know, in his early 30s and here he is being presented with a 15-year-old bride. Not exactly what I would think of as a a true consensual religious ceremony, but this is a nice religious ceremony as in terms of how nice things could actually be in Gilead. However, I think the real kicker and the most interesting piece of information we get revealed to us is June's walking partner of Matthew, who seems very pious, very proper, you know, June's like, oh, you know, you had a baby. And she says, yes, I've had three. And then she's like, I'm so blessed to be able to serve him. But there's something in her voice that just sticks. And and then they're looking at all the babies down below. And and June remarks on, you know, her baby's really cute. And she makes another comment. But you could see this is this is her hot button. This is something that's uncomfortable for her. Later, she talks about, I'm just, we're just trying to get through this and not cause any trouble, which is an interesting question. It's like, okay, have you caused trouble in the past? 
again, this is, she's starting to be somewhat of a mysterious person, this walking partner of Matthew. And it will be interesting to see how her character develops throughout the season. I think she's just a beautiful actress. And she's such an interesting counterpoint to June at this point because she seems to be so party line. But there there are a couple of cracks there. And, and we'll see what happens. So let's see. What should we talk about next? Oh, something I wanted to touch on was when they are at this ceremony, June sees Fred enter the church. He's alone. He's not with Serena. And she makes this interesting statement. I ought to feel hatred for this man. I know I ought to feel it, but it isn't what I do feel. What I feel is more complicated than that. I don't know what to call it. It isn't love. So this statement actually does come directly from the book. And it was something that the showrunner validated in a bit of a behind the scenes. And they put it in knowing that it would be somewhat controversial that June has any type of feelings towards Commander Waterford other than disgust and disdain. But here's where I think it's it's awkward, right? Is I feel like that June and Fred in the book had a much different relationship than June and Fred do in the show. And if we think back to, I don't know, I don't even think you can recall back to season one and have had her say this and for I think it would have been worse if she had said it in season one it does make slightly more sense now but I have to say I just felt that the relationship between June and Fred in the book was much different it was more congenial there wasn't as much drama with Serena Joy Fred didn't seem to be as creepy in the book as he did in season one so in some ways, it's a little bit of a a mismatch. I, I do think that, that June might have had some genuine fondness for Fred in the book. But yeah, I mean, maybe this is the right positioning of, you know, putting that line in somewhere because their relationship is definitely complex. However, I just really want to call out that the relationship is definitely, at this point, very different from what it seemed like in the book to me. There was a little bit more, I don't know, there there just seemed to be a little more warmth between them, some genuine warmth between them in um, in the book than, than there ever really has been in uh, the show. I mean, the show's just been fraught with, you know, kind of game playing and manipulation and, you know, trying to get control or use his affections to get something that she wanted or needed. So anyway, that's, that's just something I I wanted to call out as, you know, something interesting to think about. I'd, I'd love to know what others think and feel about her making that statement at this point. Going in chronological order, the next scene that I wanted to bring attention to 
is the brief interaction between Aunt Lydia and Janine after they arrive at the Putnam's and Janine brings Aunt Lydia a cup of tea. Aunt Lydia, I'm really sorry about what happened to you. I prayed, I prayed so hard when I found out for you to get better. We all did. Well, I'm sure. No, really. I know what the girls think of me. And they blame me for Emily. I should never have saved her from the colonies. I'm glad you saved me. Me too. So we know that Janine has not necessarily been mentally well throughout most of her time in Gilead. I think things for her sway back and forth a lot. She has stopped rebelling as much as I think when we very first met her, her outburst, which caused her to getting her eye taken out. I think that was, you know, really caused a huge mental break for Janine, among everything else. But there's something about her that is very sweet and genuine and caring. And, you know, it is very confusing. But, you know, I think she, I think she's you know, really just being honest. And I think she's, you know, she's kind of in some ways why she didn't get this advice from Ed Matthew. In some ways, she's taking it to heart in terms of just trying to get through it without causing too much trouble. I mean, maybe that the last half of that statement is um, a bit up in the air, but I think even when Janine is causing trouble at this point, it's coming from a place of true authenticity and caring about her baby, which you can't blame her for that. So very interesting, sweet, kind of affectionate scene between Aunt Lydia and Janine, which, um, you know, I'm not going to play any clips from that latter scene where Aunt Lydia just goes in and goes completely berserk on Janine and starts beating her. You know, that was a it was really kind of a very nice moment between Janine and the Putnams where she asks to hold the baby. And then she does kind of start getting a little out there, like, I, I can give you another good one. You know, she's desperate. She's desperate because she wants to have that time with her daughter. And I just think, you know, Aunt Lydia loses it big time. And everyone is, you know, everyone was holding their breath before just to see how it played out. It was, you know, this is like the second everyone in the room is holding their breath moment in Gilead because this, how is this going to end? You know, this is probably like, I don't think they have television programming. So like, you know, this is your must-see TV moment, right? And when Aunt Lydia loses it to that extent, I think everyone in the room is horrified. I honestly don't know what the commanders and their wife, their wives think. You know, I think they're too shocked to do anything. And, you know, it really takes June. She tries to intervene once. Aunt Lydia threatens to wail on her with that cattle prod or whatever else she's using in this instant. And then eventually she just 
throws herself on top of Janine. I mean, talk about a super just impressive moment. And I think, honestly, I think everyone in that room was relieved that she did it. You know, I mean, they were too shocked to do anything. And I think it, you know, and June is like, no, Aunt Lydia, no. And, you know, leave it to the handmaid to say what everyone else is thinking and horrified by. And note that, you know, June did not get any punishment for that. And she easily, she easily could have. But I mean, Aunt Lydia knew she was very, very wrong. We see that as she goes into the next room and, and just really has a breakdown. And I mean, this is a cruel society. And no matter what side you're on, like you try and walk the walk, it has got to eat at your human core in a damaging way. And Aunt Lydia tries, I think she does genuinely try to do what is best for these girls. I think she does care about them, but I think she has also learned to be a very cruel master in this society and, and an animal in some ways, you know, she, (laughs) she is a woman in a position of power in a society where women are mainly powerless. And her position of power is that she has permission to be cruel and abusive to other women. And I don't know, just thinking about having to live in a world where the only power you have is to be cruel and abusive to people that are the most vulnerable. It's, um, it's pretty fucking awful. It's awful. Not that I'm totally sympathizing with Aunt Lydia, but I just, I hope, I hope we never see a world like that. It's just, it's horrible. And, um, it's, it's horrible. It's really horrible. And, you know, but I don't know, maybe, maybe we do have that, um, in some pockets of our society. I, I recently rewatched the movie Spotlight, which is the story about the reporters from the Boston Globe and how they did the expose, you know, the investigative reporting they did about the priests in the Catholic church and how many of their abuses of children had been swept up under the rug just in the Boston area at first and, and just how widespread it really, it really was. And, you know, it's, there was a statement that really mirrored the statement that June made at the very beginning of this episode was it takes a village and machine guns. And Stanley Tucci's character in Spotlight says, it takes a village to raise children, and it takes a village to hide the abuses of them. And I mean, in some ways, you can draw that parallel that the Catholic Church is an organization that has a certain amount of power, but not ultimate power, really. You know, they don't They don't necessarily run the world, at least, you know, not that I know of, but they have a certain amount of power. And in many instances, they have used this power over the most vulnerable. You know, I say that I hope we never see a world like this, but 
there are some pockets of society that, that operate in this way, um, which is, you know, it's disturbing. It's disturbing. But, you know, as I said, there is nothing in the show that is not happening somewhere else in the world. And I think, you know, this is really kind of validation of that. <clears throat> Let's move on to trying to make sure there are changes in a world where awful things like this happen. And that really starts with June's conversations with both Fred and with Serena. And we're going to do a little back-to-back listening of those two conversations right now. I don't think she's satisfied planting flowers and knitting sweaters. I'm not sure she ever was. So do you think you could be open to change? Could you maybe give her a real voice? (sighs) Behind the scenes. Of course. Well, if that would fix things. worth discussing. As Mrs. Waterford, you have influence. Access. Power. Up to a point. Some of the point. Like we did before. lost without you, Serena. Wear the dress. Pull the strings. So Talking about people and the level of power they have in Gilead starts getting really interesting here because really in a societal structure as a handmaid, June has no real power. However, she's found cracks to operate within. A big crack has come with her being assigned to Commander Lawrence as his handmaid, as we saw in the last episode She got to choose three Marthas, and she chose very specific qualities in those Marthas to potentially help contribute to the resistance. And then with Serena and Fred, her power is her influence and the relationship she has formed with each of them. I mean, anyone will tell you that to, I don't know, get by, be successful in life is you need to have, you need to be able to form good relationships with people, you know, things like trust, friendship, love, support. These are all really important qualities to any relationship that you have, whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship. Now, I wouldn't call what Serena has with either Fred or Serena romantic or friendship, but there are interesting layers to the relationship. I think 
in this really strange way, I do think Fred is in love with June. I think he loves Serena, but I think there's something that fascinates him about June. Maybe she listens to him in a way that Serena will never listen to him. I mean, Serena was the key power player before the establishment of Gilead. She was the one in charge. Fred was really kind of her, her, you know, handler, her PR person, her marketing person, like, you know, almost her support. And so I think for Fred to be in a position now where the tables have turned, whenever he tries to bring his concerns or his work woes or anything to Serena, she's going to come in at it at a very specific angle. She's going to give him advice. She's going to say, why would you do that? You know, she's going to be critical of everything. I think what we saw with June in that first season was she would sit and listen, you know, and perhaps that is the key attraction for him to June is she will listen. And I think because she has listened in the past, in spite of every kind of weird, crazy thing that's happened between them, he comes to her now knowing that she will listen, but that she also knows Serena Joy and has Serena Joy's ear. He knows those two have worked together for, for better or for worse. And it isn't surprising that he is willing to take very subtle feedback from June, very subtle idea. She doesn't come in with this strong She's planting seeds. She's like, well, have you thought of this? It's worth discussing. You know, she's very diplomatic. She's not telling them what to do, but she's planting the seed of suggestion, which I think is, she, I mean, she is so crafty in these scenes, particularly with Fred. She knows how to play this guy. She really does. That, I think, is just fascinating. And again, just superb acting from Elizabeth Moss. And then the scene between she and Serena is not quite as warm. I mean, I just think Serena is, you know, we see a little bit of her, her wall, her hardness come back in this after she was so broken in the last episode. She's building back up her walls, right, to protect herself, which you cannot blame her for. And she also looked like a boss in that style of, of uh, wives dress she was wearing. It looked more like a suit. It was veering closer to a power suit than just like the day dresses they wear, which I really like to see because I feel like from what we saw in earlier seasons, especially in those flashbacks, is she was a, she was a power suit kind of girl, you know, feminine, but a suit. And so I felt like she was embodying that a little bit, but you know, she, I think she was, she just seemed irritated at first, but then, you know, June knows her very well too. And she knows what makes Serena tick. She, she's known forever that Serena is not content with the gardening, the knitting. She knows what Serena's capable of in terms of that. She's a great writer. She, she has a great brain. And while it was used for, evil to create Gilead that Serena has the chops to make changes and that she's also got the guts to do it as well. I think what Serena is going to learn from June is how to be more subtle about it. I don't think there is anything subtle about Serena in her life before Gilead. And I think there was a lot more that was subtle about June. And I think in June's crafty maneuvers, 
there's something like she is going to coach Serena through this. And it's going to be very interesting to see these two working together again. I really can't wait. And I just think the validation of their partnership was Serena handing June her cigarette case and the lighter. It was, you know, it was like the handshake. It was like the celebratory drink to close the deal. And just the dynamic between these women are just so interesting. And I just really hope it continues down this way because I love it when they partner together and they're working together in a way that can have impact. It's, it's really super exciting. And then, you know, we, we kind of, we get to the end here. It's back to kind of Serena being cold again, you know, oh, poor Naomi that this happened. And June's like, seriously, poor Naomi. And she's like, well, you know, not, it didn't end well for anyone, but Serena kind of comes up behind June and whispers the tip about where she might be able to see Hannah again. And then before June can even turn around to thank her, Serena's gone. And I think this is what's interesting is because I was just talking about Serena Joy needs to learn more subtlety and perhaps be a little sneaky. And I think the fact that she was there and then she was gone in a split second was like, okay, she's, she's in. She's it, she's in. We don't know for sure, but it's starting to feel like she's really in this, which is great. So to end, we get the news that Nicole has been spotted in Canada, and June has to identify that yes, that is her husband from before with the baby, which she's nervous about doing. I think she's also very thrilled that the baby is with him. Serena seems pretty happy just to see the baby as well. I think there's probably some sense of relief that she is actually with June's husband, knowing that he is a father and that they had a daughter together and that he loves and cares about June. She saw that when they were in Canada before and and he rushed as the commander. So, so something that I love and I definitely didn't catch when I was watching it, but when I was going back and watching it with the subtitles on is in the video, someone's talking to Luke and asking them about the baby, what her name is. And he says, she's like her mom, lots of attitude which I loved, you know, he's definitely thinking of June. And I thought that was, even if it didn't get across to the audience, you know, if anyone else watches with the subtitles on, they're going to see that. And it's just really kind of like, um, you know, gives you a nice little smile. But, you know, really, throughout this whole episode, we've been seeing June having flashbacks to the baptism of Hannah, which you know, we see a line pretty well with the ceremony they had at the beginning of the episode. And I think it was just really touching the way that I don't think either of these two people went to church regularly, but because of the fertility crisis that was happening in the United States, the fact that they had a healthy baby, the fact that someone tried to steal that baby in the hospital and and they still have her, that they wanted to thank God for the gift of this child, this, the gift of this happy, healthy child. And then we see Luke and Moira with the baby talking to a priest. Yeah, um, we're not our parents. We're like 
godparents. Right. Well, her, her mother is my wife. And my best friend. And she'd really want us to do this. Where is the mother? She's in Gilead. This little one should be absolved of their sins. As I went down in the river to pray, I baptize you about that in the name of the Father, way, and the starry crown, good Lord, show me the way. The Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So anytime there's something that happens to Nicole, I just think that this child is extremely special and a symbol of what breaking down Gilead could be. So we have to think of it in the context of, of everything that's happened in her very short life up to this point. I think we have to look at it from a way, okay, even from this baby's conception, it was consensual between a handmaid and another person, not a commander, but another person, Nick. And were they in love by the time this baby was conceived? I don't know, but there was definitely a lot of fondness and affection between them. So we can kind of chalk it up to first consensual baby born of a handmaid in Gilead, likely first baby born of loving parents one of which was a handmaid. And I want to just kind of lean in specifically to the handmaid portion of that because there could have been other babies born, but this is the first one we know about as viewers. She was the first baby born kind of just like in the raw. You know, you I mean, you know, June gave birth on her own in that house, isolated. And we'd seen the birthing ceremony before. It's like the really weird crap the wives are doing that's like kind of, you know, simulating the birth in another room while the handmaid actually get, gives birth surrounded by a whole bunch of other handmaids. It's very like, you know, tribal. And I feel like, you know, this is the first baby that was born outside the constructs of that really kind of strange birthing ceremony. It's the first baby that escapes Gilead first baby of a handmaid that escapes Gilead that we know of, that we've seen. I'm just going to chalk this up to, because this is all we've seen, that she is the first, Nicole is the first one to get out of Gilead, the first baby. And now we see she is the first baby of Gilead baptized by a religion that is not central to Gilead. She was, I think, baptized as a Catholic. And then She's also, you know, the first baby that escaped Gilead to go to a protest. <laughs> and I just feel like, you know, with Nicole being such a symbol of escape and what's possible and, you know, being this baby that is a first for so many things that, you know, I don't know what the future plans are for the show. Like they could very well like jump ahead 15, 20 years, and perhaps Nicole is a central character in terms of 
you know, the resistance. Hopefully they're still not trying to break down Gilead at that point. But I could see that, you know, kind of the origin story around this child could be very central to whatever future lies behind Gilead. I don't know. I would love to hear what other people think if they have, you know, kind of some other theories to, you know, what Nicole's future could be like uh, and whatnot. So anyway, and so while that kind of wraps up the week, I want to call out the sister resistors of the week. And I mean, it's, it's June again on the show. It is June again for throwing herself on top of Janine when Aunt Lydia is beating her. I think in a more subtle fashion, it could potentially be Serena. She's opening up her mind to more possibilities, more freedom, and what that could look like. And then in terms of resistors of the week in our lives here, the cast of The Handmaid's Tale put out a tremendous PSA in favor of abortion care and healthcare for women this week. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend going to go look it up. Um, Elizabeth Moss is in it. The woman that plays Moira is in it. The woman plays Rita, Janine. Um, Bradley Whitford is in it. Um, the actor that plays Nick and Dowd, who just looks like this beautiful earth mother. Like, she in real life is such a far cry from the Aunt Lydia we see. I just, I loved seeing this whole cast come together. Well, not the whole cast, but I loved seeing so many members of the cast come together, really call out the states that are trying to take, you know, health rights away from women and, um, you know, kudos, kudos to them. It's, uh, it was just so powerful and, um, just a really great use of when you are a celebrity and you have a voice. So that's all for this week. As always, I would love to hear your feedback about the show, any characters. Love to hear what people think about Aunt Lydia, what her backstory is. If you have anything to share, please email me at resistinggilead at gmail.com and I'll be sure to read about it on the next podcast. And then, as always, don't let the bastards grind you down. There's a lot of crazy stuff happening out there, but there are a lot of people doing some really great stuff too. And that's something that I want to stay focused on as well. And so if you happen to see something in the news that you think is great for a sister or Mr. Resistor post or just something that I should call to attention during the podcast as it aligns with what we're seeing in the show this season, please also send that to me at the resisting at gmail.com address that I noted before. Thanks so much. Have a great one.